he is a faithful God. Let me invite you to be seated, and I want to invite you to join with me in prayer. Father, we thank you today on this Father's Day that that name comes ultimately from you because you are the Father to all who, through Jesus Christ, are adopted into your family, and God, we thank you that you are faithful. We thank you for your steadfast love, for your covenant love to those who are in Christ Jesus, and God, we praise you today that you are faithful. And we thank you today for fathers who are in this place this morning, and we think of our fathers who aren't here with us this morning. And Father, we give you thanks. We know that there is no perfect Father but you. And yet those of us who delight in you and call you our Father who is in heaven, we want to, as fathers, those of us who are fathers, we want to reflect who you are in our families and to our families. And so God, would you bless us those of us particularly who may still have younger children or children in the home, God, help us to lead them to know and love Jesus Christ and to know you, come to know you as their father. Fathers, I think about the family this morning as we think about this day. We also think about the foster care crisis that exists in our country and particularly in our county. God, we think of the number of children who need foster homes, and we think of the significantly lower number of people in this county who are registered and have been trained and approved to care for these little ones. God, would you work on behalf of these children who don't have a home that they can be in at this point? They can't be in their home for a variety of reasons. We pray, God, that you would help us to remember that you have a heart for those who are orphans, even those who may be without their family and unable to be with their parents for a shorter period of time. But God, help us as your people to care as you do for these children. And I pray that you would raise up families in our church who would become foster families and others in our church who would support the families in our church that are engaged in caring for children. God, we we ask you to work in us and work through us and especially among your people as we think about the crisis in our county. And Father, as we continue to lift up our requests to you, we pray, Father, particularly today for the unreached people groups of the world. We pray for the 6,500 people groups that are unreached among the approximately 11,000 people groups in our world. We pray for the 2 billion people in those 6,500 plus unreached people groups that don't have access to the gospel. God, would you use this church and use your people throughout our world to give and to go and to support and to pray for the work of world evangelization. God, would you raise up people in our congregation and from our congregation to take the gospel 
of peace to people who've never heard that you will be their father and that Jesus Christ has come to be their savior. And God, particularly, we pray this morning for one of our own, for Kaylin Trapp. We thank you, God, for her sense of calling and for these last years that she spent taking classes to prepare. And then in the near future, the opportunity she'll have to be on site and have practical opportunities to be engaged in missions as she prepares for what she senses you have called her to do. God, lift her up, strengthen her, guide her, protect her, use her, and raise up others like her from our church to take the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Father, we also think today of what you've told us to pray for. You've told us to pray for kings and those who are in authority, so we pray for President Biden, we pray for Governor Nome, and we pray for others who represent us, and specifically today I give you thanks for Taffy Howard, and uh, pray for her as she represents us in peer. I pray, God, that you would use her and that she would glorify you as she seeks to serve the people of South Dakota. We also, Father, thank you for the election of Ed Litton this year, or this past week, rather, to be the new president of the Southern Baptist Convention, of which we're a part. We pray that you would use him to bring unity and to help us be more passionate about sharing Christ here in North America, but also to the ends of the earth. And finally, we pray, God, as we approach your word together in these next moments, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do what Jesus himself said that he would do when Jesus said, he will glorify me. And we pray that as the Spirit works through the word of God today, that Jesus would be glorified and that people would come to know and glorify Jesus more in their hearts and in their lives. We give you praise and lift these things to you together this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you to take your Bible this morning. And if you don't have a Bible with you, I hope that you'll reach under one of the chairs in front of you and grab one of the blue Bibles that you can find there so that you can follow along with us. Today we come to Psalm 59 as we continue our series through a section of the Psalms this summer. We began several weeks ago now. In Psalm 56, and today we come to Psalm 59, and by the end of the summer, our plan is to go through Psalm 69. And so today, Psalm 59. Now, if you have the bulletin this morning and a listening guide, and you are normally uh, here, you'll notice that it looks a little different. Usually there are blanks that you'll fill in as I share the message, but I didn't do that this week. What I just wanted to do this morning is, and what you have before you is just sort of an outline of the passage and the message of this psalm, and there's plenty of space that you can jot down under those headings, the things that you find especially helpful and important, and I hope you'll use that as, and that it will be a help for you this morning. Psalm 59, follow along as we read God's Word together. Deliver me from my enemies, O oh my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see you. Lord God of hosts, our God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. 
Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who they think will hear us. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God, in his steadfast love, will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter or wander by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trampled in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath, consume them till they are no more that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl or snarl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praise to you. For you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. The ESV Bible calls this psalm, Deliver Me From My Enemies, or uses that heading, and we'll use that as the title this morning for our teaching in Psalm 59. For those of you who've been here for the last few weeks, you know that the Psalms we've come to at this point all have been about King David or one who is to be in these Psalms. Actually, he's not yet. For the most part, he's not yet. And we'll see today that there's sort of a combination of both in this Psalm that he, this is describing something before he became king and even more So something that happened or things that happened after he became king. But King David, you may know, was anointed eventually to be king in place of Saul. And long before that happened, Samuel, the prophet, came to David and said that he would be king. And that that was God's plan, that that was God's will, that he would be king in the place of Saul. As a result of that, Saul was very jealous and very angry And he was convinced, or at least he convinced himself and others like him, that David was going to attempt to kill Saul. And that David somehow was going to try to overthrow Saul as king, which of course David never actually intended to do. He actually had many opportunities to do that. And he did not do that over and over again. He did not take Saul's life. He trusted in God's providence and in God's plan And so, the heading of this psalm, if you haven't noticed it yet, it says to us toward the end, it says that this psalm was a psalm of David and that it was written when Saul sent men to watch his house, that is David's house, in order to kill him. So Saul sent men to surround and to watch David's house 
looking for the opportunity to kill him. The outline that I've given you this morning, I think, tells the story of this psalm. And so let's look together, first of all, at verses 1 through 5, where we're going to see that, as David puts it, they lie in wait for my life. That's the first part of the story. Then after that, we're going to look at verses 6 through 13, and in those verses we find these words, you laugh at them, David says, referring to God, and specifically, he laughs, David says, at them, those who are his enemies. And then in verses 14 through 17, we'll finish up the psalm, and we'll think about the fact that he resolves And says three times in these last few verses of the psalm, I will sing. And so those phrases taken directly from the psalm sort of tell the story. They lie in wait for my life. You laugh at them. I will sing. So let's look at verses 1 through 5. They lie in wait for my life. In verses 1 and 2, David is praying because this is the situation. And he says in verse 1, deliver me, protect me. He says in verse 2, deliver me, save me. So he is crying out to God to deliver him, protect him, save him, because these enemies are lying in wait for his life. That is, they are waiting for the opportunity, any any opportunity they can find to attack him and to take his life. Deliver me from my enemies, he asks. Now, as we think about David's enemies, he had physical enemies, people, men who were seeking to take his life, literally, physically. Most likely, there's no one in the room this morning who has someone or a group of people who is literally, who are literally seeking to take your life. And so likely we don't have enemies exactly in the same way that David did, but the New Testament actually talks a lot about the fact that we do have enemies as those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says this about an enemy. He says, the last enemy, meaning to those of us who are Christians, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. David's enemies wanted his death. One day, our enemy, the last of all the enemies that we have as followers of Jesus Christ, death will be destroyed. In other words, one day because of Jesus Christ, we will live in a new world where there will be no death, where there will be no enemy. What an incredible hope we have. What an incredible promise we have that one day there will be no more tears. There will be no more mourning because there will be no more war and there will be no more death. There will be no more enemy because the last enemy to be destroyed will be death. And death will be destroyed. Then in verses 3 through 5, David makes clear as he sings this psalm, he makes it clear that it isn't because of some sin that he has committed that these men are after him. He's innocent in terms of 
the allegations that have been made against him, that he's against Saul, that he's trying to kill Saul or overthrow Saul. That is not at all his intention. And so he says, for no sin of mine, meaning what they are saying I have done or am seeking to do is not true. I'm not guilty of this sin that causes Saul to send these men after me. I've not sinned. And of course, as I read that and as I think about the fact that David, like many Old Testament characters, but David, maybe as much as any other Old Testament figure, points to Jesus. And that's why in the New Testament, he's called the son of David many times. And we have genealogies that make it clear that he came in a certain way. There was Abraham, of course, and then there was David and others who were in his genealogy, and ultimately they all pointed to Christ. And as I think about David protesting his innocence here, not saying that he's innocent of any and all sin, but that he's innocent of the sin that is being accused of him and that is causing his life to be endangered, it points to the fact that great David's greater son, Jesus, was actually without all sin. He was perfectly innocent. David wasn't. Innocent in this case of the particular charge brought against him. But Jesus, the son of David, was without all sin. And that is good news because Jesus lived his life without sin for you. And then he died in his death for sin for you. In other words, his life without sin is credited to those of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus' righteousness, his perfect obedience is credited by faith, through faith, credited to those of us who trust in Jesus Christ and the benefits of his death. His sacrifice for our sins is ours. And again, this all goes back to the fact that he lived his life without sin. Hebrews, or excuse me, Philippians 2 says it this way, that Jesus was obedient even to the point of death, even the cross kind of death. And it's because of Jesus' sinlessness that you and I can be saved. Notice also in this passage, in verses 3 through 5, this next part of the passage, that he talks about in verse 5, punishing all of the nations. I want you to notice the phrase, all the nations. Because two more times in this psalm, we're going to see that the psalm has a worldwide scope. And that's significant in light of what we see particularly in the New Testament. Punish all the nations. The nations, of course, at this time were those who did not know the one true God. And they were pagan. And they were evil. Now, earlier we said that this was about people that Saul had sent. And they would have been a part of his administration as king. And so they would have been Jews And now he talks about the nations. Why? Why does he connect these two? Some say that he probably wrote the majority of the psalm while Saul's men were pursuing him. But later, as king, when he became the enemy of many nations because they were the enemies of Israel and he was the king of Israel, that he added some things to this psalm because those two things, what he experienced before he was king, 
and what he experienced after he was king were very similar. These were people who lived as if they did not know God. Those who were sent from Saul and then those among the nations who did not know God. And he ties them together. And I want you to see here that this foretells what the Bible tells us will happen one day. All of those outside of Jesus Christ, all people who don't know the one true God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, will face eternal judgment one day. We'll stand before a holy God and we'll face punishment. But those of us who trust in Christ, His life without sin, His death for sin, will have eternal life. They lie in wait for my life. Jesus, or excuse me, David prays to be delivered from them. Jesus, who came from David, had enemies also. And he willingly laid down his life so that you and I could be forgiven of our sins. Now let's look at verses 6 through 13. By the way, after verse 5, do you notice the word selah there? It's found in many psalms. Most people believe that it's probably something akin to a musical rest because the psalms were songs done to music. And this was probably something like a musical rest, but it goes beyond that. It most likely is intended to lead those who have read what goes before the Selah to pause, to ponder. To pause and to ponder what's been sung, what's been said before the Selah. Verses 6 through 13, you laugh at them. Verse 6 says, each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips. One of the things we'll see in the psalm is that one of their greatest sins was their mouths, the things that they said, their lips, for who they think will hear us. They thought no one will really hear the things that we're saying, and therefore we won't be accountable. Verse 8, but you, O Lord... David says, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you, for you, O God, are my fortress, my mighty fortress, in light of what we've sung this morning. It literally means that which is lifted up and safe. A tower is the idea, where you're above those who might seek to harm you. My God in His steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Here, David begins to compare his enemies to dogs. It's a vivid analogy. Now, most of us, when we think of dogs in America, we think of an animal that's clean and that goes to the vet, right? And that's a pet. But that's not the way the word's being used here. Think of what I used to hear of, and they were called junkyard dogs. Maybe that's the best way to think about what's being talked about here. In David's day, dogs were for the most part dirty, vicious, wild, dangerous. And that's why he uses this analogy for those who are his enemies. And he says specifically, you laugh at them. In other words, They think that they're going to be able to kill David, but to do so, they would have to somehow defeat God. 
because God's plan was for David to be king. And so David says it's laughable. In God's eyes, he sees it for what it really is. It's, it's a joke to think that they could succeed because they would have to succeed against God to succeed against David in this particular situation. What's interesting here in this psalm is that there's another psalm before this, and I want you to hold your place in the psalm we're in, Psalm 59, if you have your Bibles open still, and go back to Psalm 2. And we have this same language there. Psalm 2. Let me just read the first four verses of the psalm because I want you to see the connections between Psalm 2 and the psalm we're looking at today. Why do the nations rage? Remember the reference to all the nations that we just saw in our psalm. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? That's what David's enemies were doing, David says. They're plotting in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, meaning his king. This psalm probably originally was written about David, but ultimately it applies to Jesus, the king. And so the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4, he who sits in heaven, what does it say? Laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. That is the nations, the peoples who plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed. That's what these enemies were doing in Psalm 58. They were plotting against the Lord and his anointed, David, the one he had anointed or would anoint to be king over Israel. Listen. It's laughable, it's foolish to think that any person, that any emperor, that any empire could ever overcome God's purposes and God's plans. And yet they've tried to again and again. For example, in the late 3rd century and the early part of the 4th century, a Roman emperor by the name of Diocletian sought to destroy Christianity And he thought he had succeeded because he made medals and had engraved on the medals these words, having destroyed the name of Christians or the name of Christians being extinguished. He thought he had extinguished Christianity and yet here we are. Today, halfway around the world from where that took place and we are confessing Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And then he also, Diocletian did, made monuments on which he had these words written, for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ. He believed Christ and the gospel as the Christians believed it was a superstition, and he thought he had extinguished it. But what do you think God did when Diocletian thought that he would do this and thought that he had done this? I think on the basis of these psalms, we might say, in some sense, God laughed. And he held him and his empire and all empires in derision because it's impossible for them to succeed. And so David says in verse 9, I will watch for you. 
I will watch for you. And then notice at the beginning of verse 10, my God in his steadfast love will meet me. That's going to be the first of four times we're going to find reference to God's steadfast love in the psalm. And that's significant. God's steadfast love, it literally means God's covenant commitment to his people. God's faithful love, God's steadfast love to his people. Pastor Joel preached two weeks ago, two psalms before this, which also made reference to God's steadfast love. And Pastor Joel said that Jesus was the embodiment of God's steadfast love. And I want to remind you of that today if you were here a couple of weeks ago. For those of you who weren't, I want you to understand that Jesus was the embodiment of God's steadfast love. And he says in verse 10, my God in his steadfast love will meet me. Now the word meet there is a significant word. Kidner, in his commentary, says it's a very vivid word. He says it can mean to confront or to lead from the front. And so David here is saying he is trusting that God is going to confront him with his steadfast love and that he's going to lead him by his steadfast love. And Kidner says this, and I think this is so helpful. I've thought about this a lot this week. And if you struggle with the fear of man, I want you to mark this verse. And almost all of us probably do to one degree or another and in one way or another. Kidner says this, he says, this is what this means. God, rather than the enemy, fills the foreground of David's eyes. The word meet here means to be in front of, and he's saying, God, you are going to meet me, you're going to confront me in your steadfast love. Your steadfast love is going to be in the foreground of my mind and of my thoughts even though his life is in jeopardy. And so imagine God being in the front and then the enemies just sort of in the background. That's what David was trusting that God would give him the grace to do and that's what we need the grace to do. Several years ago I read a book that was super helpful. It was entitled, When People Are Big and God is Small. If you've never read it, I'd encourage you to consider reading it. And to me, that's what this verse really is pointing to. For David, he trusted that God would give him the grace so that God would be big and that people who were his enemies, who were literally seeking his life, would be small in comparison because God would be in front and they would be behind in terms of David's thinking. And that's the way God wants us to live and to glorify him. And then quickly in verses 11 through 13, notice what he says about his enemies. He says, Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter or wonder by your power to bring them down. What he's saying there is, not that he doesn't want them ultimately to face ultimate judgment, but he doesn't want it to come so suddenly and be done with so quickly that his people, meaning the people of Israel, that they will forget they will forget. And then later he says, at the end of verse 13, he also wants it to happen this way. He wants them ultimately to be consumed in God's wrath, but he doesn't want it to happen so quickly that the news doesn't have a chance to spread because of the length of the story. 
but it doesn't have a chance to spread. And here's another reference to the worldwide nature of this psalm. Notice the end of verse 13, to the ends of the earth. Last week we talked about what we see here. Prayers against enemies for God to strike your enemies. But I want you to notice something we see very clearly in this psalm as David makes the request that he does in in this part of the psalm. Notice that he is not motivated primarily by his personal welfare and desire. If so, he would have wanted those enemies to be killed immediately. But instead, he was motivated by his people's lasting spiritual benefit and God's glory to the ends of the earth. So he wasn't just driven by malice and anger toward these people who were trying to kill him. He certainly felt that because he was human, like we all would in these circumstances. But the things things that motivate him most as he prayed for God to act against them and on his behalf, he prayed because most of all he wanted to see God's people learn something And he wanted them not to forget it. He wanted it to happen in a way that it would not be forgotten. And ultimately, he wanted it to happen in such a way that it would be proclaimed to the ends of the earth and that people all the way to the ends of the earth would give God glory as the one true God, the God of Israel. That should motivate our prayers above all else. I said last week it's okay for us to say to God in an unedited way what we feel, what we think. Because it's the best way for us to grow. It's the best way for us to process emotions that we experience. We should do that, but we also always pray ultimately motivated by the glory of God. The glory of God, that God's name would be known And that he would somehow be known and worshipped among the nations all the way to the ends of the earth. And then finally in verses 14 through 17, notice that he says in these verses three times, I will sing. Look at verse 14. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. In Tim Keller's commentary on the psalm, he translates, and many translations translate growl in verse 15 as snarl. And Keller has this statement as if it comes from the mouth of David. You will snarl, but I will sing. You will snarl, but I will sing. I will sing of your strength, he says. I will sing aloud. And here's the second time, of your steadfast love. That's the second time there's reference to this. In the morning, for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises. There's the third, I will sing. I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. There's steadfast love again. As we come now to the Lord's table, I want you with me to remember the three references in this psalm to steadfast love. Covenant love is what it 
refers to faithful love, steadfast love. I said earlier that Jesus Christ was the embodiment of the steadfast love of God, the covenant love of God. But the cross was the enactment of the steadfast love of God, the covenant love of God. It's through the cross that we can come in covenant, come into covenant with God and become His children and know that He will never fail us, that He will always be faithful to us. He will love us and His love will be steadfast. His love will never, ever, ever end through Jesus Christ, and as we trust in Jesus Christ. I want to invite you today, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ as your one and only hope, your one and only Savior, those who are members of this church, those who are members of other churches in good standing, we welcome you to remember what Jesus has done so that you so that you could have a right relationship with God and be forgiven of your sins and give Him thanks in the doing of this time of communion. Let's bow and let's pray. Father, as we come to this precious time of reenacting what happened in the upper room as Jesus has commanded us to as your people. I pray that we would do so in a way that is worthy. We are never worthy in ourselves, but we do this in a way that is worthy if, in fact, we are trusting in you only and we are willing and ready to repent of anything that you bring to our minds so that we might follow you more faithfully. So help us to remember what these elements represent. The body of Jesus broken for us, the blood of Christ shed for us. And I pray for those today who have not yet trusted in Christ as they witness others receiving these elements. I pray that as we receive these symbols of Jesus' sacrifice, that they will Be led by your spirit to receive spiritually by faith what Christ has done as their only hope and be saved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.